Welcome into another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast, along with Blue Ribbon's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. It is great as always to have you with us. We have a new national champion in college basketball. It is Baylor. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Some good guests coming up today as well. Going to have Jeff Cabe, the Associate Commissioner of the Southern Conference, and also Brett Friedlander, who uh, covers the ACC and has been a Blue Ribbon contributing editor for years. So uh, looking forward to those guys joining us in just a little bit. Chris, what's going on? Well, you know, now I'm, I enter the postpartum depression stage of, of, uh, of the year. Uh, college basketball is over. I can't just uh, turn on a game any time of day or night uh, and, and get my fix. So uh, we're going to still continue to bring this podcast, which will have some good guests and uh, all through the off season. And of course, we'll start on Blue Ribbon here in a couple of months. So you know, really, for me, the season always continues. Yeah, it's kind of a year-round thing with, with what you do at Blue Ribbon to uh, keep compiling all the info and, and stories and things that, that go into the magazine every year. And uh, just, I, I got to give you a kudos, some fantastic content throughout the NCAA tournament and just, just cranking out stuff every single day. It, it was really awesome to read and, and keep up to date and get some of the great stories of the teams involved in the tournament. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, couldn't have done it alone. Had help, obviously, you with the with the podcast and, and being such the capable host that you are. And we had some really good writers helping me. And you know, if uh, that's a basketball writer's dream is is to write stories about the the NCAA tournament. And we had some really good stuff. And the tournament never uh, fails to provide great great stories. Yeah. That's why I think it's the best sporting event there is. Well, I guess we'll uh, start there. Uh, Baylor won the NCAA championship back on Monday night. They blew out Gonzaga 86-70 in, in the championship game. Scott Drew completed really an, an amazing turnaround for that program from where it was when he took it over to now when they're the national champs. But in, in terms of the game, man, they were just hot early. They led by 19 in the first half. They hit 10 threes on the night on 23 tries. They got 14 turnovers, good from the free throw line. Jared Butler, 22 points, three rebounds and seven assists, hit four threes. Maceo Tigg scored 19 points. For Gonzaga, had Jalen Suggs picking up two early fouls. Played really well in the second half, ended up with 22 points. But they only scored 70 points. They've been averaging 91 over the course of the season, only made five threes. And, Chris, I, I thought after that dramatic game against UCLA on Saturday, the one thing I wondered, and you and I even talked about it, was how would Gonzaga look when Monday, Monday night rolled around? I thought they looked flat, and Baylor, it was more about Baylor playing great because they were awesome, especially in that first half, and, and they didn't let up uh, throughout the course of the night on Monday. They didn't. And here's what I've found out, Kevin. I think that all things being equal are relatively equal. The team that can make three-pointers is going gonna, is gonna to win, and, and I'll, I'll give you some stats. I won't bore you with the stats, mm-hmm. but – Gonzaga was number one in, in the nation offensive efficiency, Baylor number two. Gonzaga was 11th in defensive efficiency, Baylor 22. So basically the same. And this is cool. Gonzaga led the nation in two-point percentage at 64%, but Baylor led the nation in three-point percentage at 41%. Wow. So here's my theory. Villanova won two championships recently. And in the 12 games it took for them to win it, they shot 50% from three. Uh, Virginia won the tournament and averaged 8.3 three-pointers per game and played that pack line smothering defense. So my theory is, is that the, the team that can really shoot the three 
can punch you in the face. And it's kind of like Mike Tyson said that game the other night, everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the face. And Baylor came out with their three shooting. And if you, if you look, uh, Joel AIE and, and Corey Kispert are really, they're only two, I mean, really good three point shooters. Uh, Suggs and Nempart are just okay. Yeah. But if you look up and down the Baylor roster, they can all make threes. Teague and Butler and, and, and so many others. Uh, and I think that's what, you know, enabled – it's what enabled Baylor to get out ahead and, and it it's what prevented Gonzaga from catching up. Yeah. So uh, I just thought it was cool how the, the stats lined up and one team led the nation in two-point percentage and the other in three. And the one, obviously, that could make threes was the one that, won by 16 points and like you I was shocked I I thought that I, I knew we talked about Gonzaga may be being fatigued mentally physically but I thought they might have got uplifted by that Suggs miracle 40 footer to 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 win the UCLA game and the pursuit of history I'm, I'm a big history buff it's why I followed Tiger Woods uh, it's why I I think Jack Nicholas is the best and why I followed him. And, and it's why I, you know, love college basketball. I, I like teams that have a chance to compare themselves to the greatest ever. And I thought that was going to be enough for Gonzaga, but I'll tell you what, when, when you've got some gunners uh, like Villanova did for two championships, like, like Butler did. Yeah. I think all things, all other things being equal, that's going to be what what puts you over the top. And, and Baylor, just a great team. They've been a terrific program for for the last several years. You know, they they've made some good runs, but they finally broke through, got to the Final Four, and won the championship. Gonzaga finishes up thirty-one and one. They came up one win short of the unbeaten season. They were the closest since Indiana State back in 1979, and nobody's done it since Indiana in 76. And I've said for years, I didn't think anybody could do it, could go undefeated and win the championship. But as, as this season went along, I was starting to believe uh, when, it, when it came to Baylor because I, I knew they weren't going to lose any in their conference. It was just a matter of, you know, could they finish the job in the NCAA tournament where you know the games get progressively tougher as you go along. And uh, speaking of progressively tougher – the game on Saturday, the semifinal game, Gonzaga-UCLA, was one of the all-time great tournament games. Everybody will remember the Suggs banked in buzzer beater from 40 feet for the win in overtime, but Chris, it was really a great game from start to finish. Gonzaga shot 58%, UCLA shot 57%. There are only 10 turnovers for each team in a 45-minute game, which is remarkable. Johnny Juzang had 29 for UCLA, Drew Timmy scored 25 for Gonzaga. That was really something to watch. You know, sometimes I think games that have big finishes get remembered as great games just because of the way they finished, and they weren't necessarily that way throughout the course of the game. This one was was fantastic from beginning to end. I I just thought it was one of the best games I'd ever seen in in the tournament. No question. And, and, you know, Mick Cronin's done an incredible job at UCLA, and I think the difference between what he's been able to do there and what he was able to do at Cincinnati is is clear. He can get better players at, at UCLA. There's no question. And Suggs made two incredible plays before he, he made that shot. Yeah. You know, he blocked the what would have been a sure dunk, corralled the loose ball in the corner, took two dribbles, and threaded a one-handed bounce pass through three UCLA defenders to Drew Timmy on the dead run. He catches it at the foul line and dunks. I mean, only special players can do that. 
And then Timmy made that, uh, drew that charge late. It was just a game of, of big plays. And it really bodes well for UCLA. I, I've seen our buddy Jeff Brazella, who was on our show last week, uh, has already written his way too early top 25. <laughs> and he's got UCLA number two. And yeah. legitimately, everybody could come back, including Chris Smith, our best player, who tore his ACL in January and was lost for the year. Props to Indianapolis and the NCAA for getting the tournament in. They only lost a game or two along the way. They really did a great job. Had all those different venues, you know, around Indiana. It looked like it was very well thought out and and planned and everything. So uh, I know it was it was tough for those teams that were there for for a long time, for you know, three or four weeks. You know, however long they had to be there to if you played all the way to the Final Four. But I thought Indianapolis did a terrific job, and, and certainly hats off to them for. Uh, for getting the job done, uh, we didn't have a tournament last year, and I know you and I were, were heartbroken about that. Just, just crushed it. We didn't get to see uh, just one of the great events in sports for, for sure. But uh, Indianapolis, they they got it done. Uh, they got it all the way to the Final Four and played the championship. And hopefully next year we'll, we'll see things get a little more normal and, and feel a little more normal because there there were parts of that that just didn't didn't feel like a normal NCAA tournament. But you're glad the games that were uh, played and, and were on, and, and you're able to watch them and, and enjoy them like usual. Yeah, I, I commend the NCAA. I, I mean, they were criticized by some, but I mean, that's not fair in my opinion because who has ever dealt with anything like this? You know, it's, it's just a, I hope, uh, uh, I fear it may not be, but I hope it's a one in a century uh, occurrence. But yeah, I, I it was cool to see the, the games at Hinkle Fieldhouse, of course, where Butler plays and all around the city and I thought they did a really good job, and I didn't really hear anything of, of COVID sneaking in. Uh, there was one tragic occurrence. A, a young Alabama fan uh, had COVID and went back home and passed away from it. Yeah, uh, and, Cam- Cameron Luke Ratliff. I mean, that guy was a super fan. I mean, uh, Yeah, he wore the, the plaid jackets. Yeah, every, and I, you know, they knew him as, as Fluff. Uh, you know, Luke, Luke Ratliff, I mean, he was, he was really well-known, and it, it was – it was really touching to see some of the stuff, not not just from Nate Oates and the Alabama folks, but like from from all the other uh, opposing SEC teams and people that had come in contact with my, you know, I thought in, in just a, a tragic circumstance, it was neat to see how many people uh, reached out. It really was, of course, our, our hearts and thoughts and prayers. Uh, I know that sounds cliche, goes goes out to his family, but uh, that's the only incident. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody got booted from the bubble or. Uh, wasn't allowed to play. There, there might have been a player or two that had to show up late. But I think the NCAA, by and large, did a fantastic job. And, you know, in, in their defense, when the pandemic broke a year ago in March, it just came right on top of the beginning of the NCAA tournament. And, and the NCAA had no time to act or, or make any kind of contingency. Yeah. I think some people had hoped that they could push it down to May. I, I was one of them. Uh, but it, it, it never it never uh, was able to, uh, you know, they couldn't get anything done. And I think they recovered nicely this year. I really do. Yeah, the thing was last year, if, if the pandemic had hit about a month or six weeks later, we, we would have been able to get the tournament in. But uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Other big news of the last few days in the last week uh, since we did our, our previous show, the retirement of Roy Williams at North Carolina Won three championships there, had a great run at Carolina, and then before that was awesome at, at Kansas for a lot of years. But uh, congratulations to Coach Williams uh, on a great career and, and all the best in retirement. And uh, they hired Hubert Davis as the uh, next 
North Carolina head coach, which I, I, to me, I thought that's probably what would happen. It seemed like a logical choice. I know there were some other names being thrown out there, but uh, uh, that, that's big news out of North Carolina, one of the, the great coaching jobs uh, in college basketball. Well, I disagree with Roy Williams on one thing. When he retired, he, he said that he didn't think he was the man to lead the program anymore, and uh, I, I think he could have coached till he was 80 and been just fine. Uh, but he felt strongly in his heart that, that it was time for him to go. I think he, uh, in hindsight now, and, and just listening to their conversations, it, it appears that, that Roy brought Hubert Davis into the fold eight years ago with the intention of maybe that being his eventual replacement. Yeah. And I listened to, to Hubert's introductory press conference, and I found out a couple of things I didn't know. Uh, when he was in high school, he only had two D1 offers. One was from George Washington, and one was from George Mason, where I went to school for two years. And Rick Barnes was the coach then. And it was Rick Barnes who told me a week ago, he said, oh, Hubert Davis will get that job. So I'm sure he had some prior knowledge. Rick's name had been mentioned as a quote-unquote tier two candidate. But I think it was Hubert all along. And if you listen to Hubert's remarks, they were moving and he was emotional about how much Carolina means to him and how they're going to show up every day, every second, every possession. And I don't doubt that's true. Uh, Obviously he's never been a head coach before, let alone uh, at a school like Carolina, but I think he's the right man for the job. Chris, our first guest of the day is here. He is Jeff Cave, the Associate Commissioner of the Southern Conference. And, uh, Jeff, always great to have you with us. And uh, it was really impressive. Chris and I were talking about this earlier, just to see how the NCAA tournament was done and they got the whole thing played. Yeah, it was a challenge for, uh, I'm sure, of um, obviously unprecedented proportions, trying to get 68 teams into a city and get everybody in there healthy and out of there healthy. And I know they – they had the one uh, one little blip on the screen there with VCU, but uh, you know we we did our conference basketball tournament, you know, men and women together in Asheville, North Carolina, and we had 18 teams and uh, were able to get everybody in and out uh, safely. And uh, but I can't imagine multiplying that times <laughs> times like three or four and uh, and having 68. That must have been a that must have been just a just a, a mammoth undertaking. Uh, first of all, Jeff, thanks for reminding me about VCU. I, I messed up a while ago, Kevin. That, that was the blip, mm-hmm. VCU. Um, I got to give kudos to, to my buddy Jeff. We've known one another for when we were puppies when we first met. I remember the very day we met. But it, it was Jeff who uh, was one of my chief consultants on whether I should publish Blue Ribbon this year. And I kept asking him, man, I'm just scared to, to go. And he kept saying, Chris, you got to do it. I've been talking to the NCAA, all their doctors. Uh, you know, they're going to, we're going to play. Uh, Jeff, thanks, first of all. But what made you so sure after hearing all that you heard that, that we, we were going to have a season? Yeah, well, there was no certainty around anything. It just, it just kind of felt like um, the conversations that were ongoing uh, that there was, uh, you know, that we were going to find a path. Uh, and, um, you know, the stakes were enormous, obviously. Uh, the stakes for not having a season were um, tremendous, uh, just, you know, from the dollars and cents standpoint of, of, you know, the TV contracts and 
how leagues are primarily funded. Um, you know, that, that shouldn't be the reason to, to necessarily have a season. Uh, but, uh, you know, as people learned more and more about what we were dealing with and testing became better and better and uh, people could, uh, could, could figure out a way to test uh, and not feel like they were preventing other people that really needed testing from having it, um, you know, then I think the pathway became, became much clearer. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, health and safety was always primary uh, in everyone's mind. But, um, you know, but also having a season for the student athletes and having a season for, you know, uh, um, you know, the mental well-being of, of, uh, of the student athletes and others involved in the game was, was also an important component. We talked about this uh, a couple of days ago on the phone. The transfer portal has blown up. And it seems like uh, whenever the portal gets active, th- there are guys that leave so-called mid-major leagues. I hate that term, but, and go up to power conferences. And you had, we had talked about almost like some, some coaches adjusting their recruiting now because it, it was getting frustrating to lose their best players to the portal. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a little bit of a paradigm shift, I think, going on in, in recruiting that schools, especially mid-major schools, are going to have to deal with. You know, the, you know, the transfer thing's always been there, right? I, I mean, people have always transferred. But, uh, you know, but now there's this perfect storm around the uniform transfer exception, which, by the way, I think the Division One Council is going to vote on that next week. It's expected to be approved you know, the extra year of eligibility that the NCAA is giving uh, people with the pandemic. You know, I think all that's a perfect storm for this coming year, you know, where, where I think we have 1,200 names already in the portal. In a, in, a, in a given year, you might have, you know, 800, 900, maybe 1,000. Uh, you've already got 1,200, and it's early. Um, you know, so that that's going to be uh, – people are going to have to adjust their uh, recruiting tactics a little bit. They're going to have to have – people I think that are experts in managing the transfer portal, Um, you know, uh, along with obviously, you know, you need to recruit uh, high school talent. Uh, You need to retain talent in your program and you need to worry about your class balance. You know, you can't get too young uh, and you can't necessarily get, um, you know, too old. Uh, You know, everybody wants to to be old because I think you win games when you, when you do have experience and continuity, but you know, but you can't have, you know, all seniors one year and, and not have good class balance. So um, much more challenging than it has been in the past. Um, you know, I know just looking at our numbers in our league, I think we had 32 transfers in 1819, 19 of them eventually transferring and 21 last year with 17 transferring. And then this uh, right now we have uh, roughly 40 in the portal. So uh, you know, but the portal works both ways too, right? That there's there's talent that, uh, you know, you, you lose maybe some top talent that wants to quote unquote transfer up, uh, but you've also got you know talent there that uh, uh, that you probably have access to. Um, you know, UNCG just signed a kid from Clemson, for example. Um, you know, so that it works both ways in 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 a lot of ways. So the people that can manage it effectively and and uh, you know, and to the benefit of their program, you know, they're, they're going to have a leg up, I think. Visiting with Jeff Cabe, he's the Associate Commissioner of the Southern Conference, and all that 
said, uh, you know, about the transfer portal and still a pretty crazy time. Do you, do you still feel a sense of optimism going into the summer about a more normal off season and then hopefully things looking more familiar when we get to next year? Well, we sure do hope so. I mean, I mean, we, we, uh, we haven't even really thought about it not being normal. I think that's yeah. the <laughs> that's the anticipation that most people are having. Uh, you know, I saw where the NBA came out and said they expect to have full attendance at their games next year. Um, you know, all of it is is kind of wishful thinking till we get completely over the hump. But um, you know, everything seems to be trending in that direction with you know vaccinations and uh, you know things like that. Um, but I, I think we've shown the ability to adapt if we have to. And, yeah. and I think, we can, you know, we, we know we can have a season. Uh, we won't go th- through anything. I think that it was as difficult as what we went through last year. So, um, but hopefully, hopefully we're a hundred percent. We're normal. Um, you know, fans can come to games yeah. <laughs> as many fans as, as, as want to come to games can, can come to games. Uh, uh, you know, that's where everybody wants to get to. Jeff, uh, we've all changed our way of working and and I think it's changed industry. People realize they don't have to fly across country for board meetings and, and they can do a lot of stuff from home. Uh, Has your league and the NCAA in general, do you you think they take some more efficient ways of doing things? Uh, uh, Because uh, necessity is always the mother of invention. Yeah, I do think the platform that we're on here today with Zoom, I think that's gonna that's that's here to stay. I wish we all had some Fuck. I wish we all had some foresight and put yeah. some money into Same it here. But, uh, um yeah, I think platforms like this and virtual platforms are are here to stay. Um, you know, I think as you know, our league's talked about this, it it doesn't really replace what you get out of in person meetings though. You know, so I think our league is um we're trying to get back to some in-person meetings, you know, with our athletic directors and with our coaches down the road, because I think that, you know, there's more value there. Uh, uh, but, but this is a, is, is an excellent platform for, you know, having regular communication and, 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 you know, being able to kind of address the issues of the day that may not be able to wait for, you know, regularly scheduled meetings. Um, but yeah, I think uh, a lot of this, a lot of the way people have are going have have been working and are going to work have you know it's been been altered a little bit. Well, Jeff, uh, thanks as always for the time. Congratulations on getting the season done. A great work by everybody at your league and everywhere else. We always appreciate it, and hope we can catch up with you again down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Love being here, and, and thank you guys for all that you do for college basketball. Appreciate it, man. Take care. All right. That was Jeff Cave, the Associate Commissioner of the Southern Conference, joining us here for our Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. I know a longtime friend of Chris, as they talked about a moment ago. Our second guest of the day, a longtime ACC beat writer and Blue Ribbon contributing editor, he is Brett Friedlander, and he joins us now. Brett, how's it going? I'm doing well. Um, a little bit sad. Basketball is over for, yeah. the, for the season. I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe baseball will keep us going, but uh, otherwise doing well. Uh you know, I, I met Brett um, because of his brother, Andy, and, and he said, Brett needs to be writing for Blue Ribbon. He is Mr. ACC. And so I called Brett, and we had a great conversation. And, and uh, have you been with us like 20 years now? Something like that. <laughs> I'm Mr. ACC only because I've been around that long. <laughs> I, it's great how many years get behind you, but uh, he's definitely uh, – 
been a big asset to us. And we just wanted to get you on and, and, and talk to you about, uh, you know, the, the coaching change at Carolina. And we're going to ask you about Coach Williams second. But, but first, did you expect Hubert to get it? And, and what do you think of, of the hiring of Hubert Davis? I actually didn't think that Hubert was going to get it because for the longest time we've been, we've been hearing that Wes Miller was the heir apparent. And then um, in the, the days even preceding um, um, Roy's retirement, we started hearing some buzz that they might go outside the family, especially somebody within, with, with NBA ties. And then, um, and then Roy uh, retired and they moved extremely quickly, and almost from the from the press conference, we started beginning you know to hear buzz that that it was going to be Hubert, and I think the biggest thing that that led them to go with Hubert um, is that um, a lot of the players that had played at Carolina, Kenny Williams and Bryce Johnson, and those guys who you know even though Hubert wasn't a head coach, he did coach the the JV there, but. The, the testimonials from those guys were so glowing. They were so convincing that uh, Bubba Cunningham decided that, that he was the right guy to go with, even though he's something of a gamble because he doesn't have any head coaching experience. And, you know, I know they'll, they're, they're going to say he coached the, the JV and that is head coaching experience, but it's not being on the bench with, you know, a minute and a half to go against Duke with uh, you know millions of people watching on TV and having to make a decision. I, I think it's somewhat of a gamble because he doesn't have the head coaching experience and you know it, it they don't have the the um the safety net that they did with Roy Williams the last time. When when it was Matt Doherty and things weren't going well, they cut bait after just three years because they knew they had Roy who they could convince that they needed him. Well there's nobody like that this time and so it's you know, this is this is kind of a gamble, um, but um, it's not a bad gamble. I mean, because Hubert has been in the game for a long time. Uh, he played in the NBA. He sat beside Pat Riley. He sat beside um, uh, Roy Williams. And I, I think the best thing that he can do is hire as his top assistant somebody with head coaching experience, and not a young guy with head coaching experience, an older guy who is not looking to use the job as a stepping stone but is there to be a mentor yeah. and to not tell him what to do, but to be there in case Hubert turns to him to the left, you know, in that situation with a minute and a half to go against Duke, say, what do we do here? He will have known what to do and he can help him. I, I, I totally agree with that. Brett, as far as Roy Williams, you know, he won three NCAA titles there, uh, had great runs at Carolina and, and at Kansas before him. He had a, a Hall of Fame career at Kansas, but where, where do you feel like he places among the coaching legends? You know, he will be quick to downplay himself. Uh, he's very, you know, self-depreciating. But I, I think if you look, and you've already mentioned his, his record, uh, the three national championships, the, the final fours, uh, the fact that he took, a, you know, two programs uh, to, to the pinnacle. And the second time when he went to UNC, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were just, you know, one season removed from a 22-loss season. And they could have become Indiana very quickly. But he got there and he won a national championship two years after he got there. So I, I think that he ranks in the top, well, at least in the top 10. You could make an argument in the top five. And let's not forget, too, he had 903 wins. He was third on the all-time list. And he didn't become a head coach until he was 38 years old. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, if he'd started younger, if he would have wouldn't have you know stuck with Dean as long as he did, uh, he'd be even higher on that list. And and maybe you you know we would be talking about him you know as more of a consensus top three or four pick. Uh, this this brings up another question about heir apparents. Uh, you know the, the the Duke family tree is not having a real good time. Uh, Chris Collins sort of sunk back after getting Northwestern to the NCAA's a couple of years ago, and Coach Wojciechowski getting fired at Marquette, uh, and Jeff Capel having everybody jump ship at Pittsburgh. Yes, yes, I was going to ask. Yeah, the the portal is getting filled with Pitt players. So, is there an heir apparent? And, and do you think Coach K? I mean, it's hard to know, obviously. You can't read his mind. But how much longer do you think he'll coach? I, I think Coach K is more of a coach-till-he-drops kind of guy than Roy. I mean, Roy has always been, you know, an avid golfer. I mean, he shot in the 80s at Augusta National a couple of weeks ago, he said. Um, and, and also, he's a devoted grandfather who loves puttering around the house with the kids. So this does not surprise me, especially if you look at the pictures of him two years ago, and now look at him now, these past two years, and especially the last year with the with the COVID and, and all yeah. the, the hoops he had to jump through, really aged him a lot. I think it really just kind of made him decide that's it. Kay's different. He's wired differently. That having been said, he's got three five-stars coming. He's going to have one of those great Duke recruiting classes. If things really kind of come together, and he doesn't just get them back to the NCAA tournament, but they make a really deep run, and especially if they get to the Final Four, I could see him walking away at that point. Wow. Um, I think he's got at least another couple of years in him, though. I, I, I would not be surprised if he stuck around another two to three years. But the man is in his 70s. Yeah. I mean, how long can you do this? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, and how long do you have the energy to do this? Um, and here's the thing about who comes next. I mean, it's that's the, the great parlor game right here in the triangle, right? And actually probably around the country is, is what happens, you know, when, when Kay leaves unless he's like bionic and goes on forever. But, um, you know, I, I think what has happened at UNC over the last few days is really telling because if you leave, I mean, everybody thought it was going to be Johnny Dawkins and it didn't work out. And, you know, if, if you want to go with a, a, a kind of a bridge guy and bring in a Tommy Amaker or somebody like that, knowing that he's an older guy and you can still groom somebody else, there's that. But, um, you know, I, I would have said before this past year, Capel was still the guy because he was the recruiter that brought in all those five stars that, you know, that won the national championship for him in 2015. But to be honest with you, after seeing with what has happened at UNC with, um, with, with Hubert Davis, I would say that John Shire right now is in the best position of anybody because he's there, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law, right? Yep. He's sitting second chair to K. He doesn't have a, a negative, you know, stain on his, you know, if he hasn't gone anywhere and, and, and not been successful. So, you know, there's there's something to be said for that. And and I think that right now John Shire would probably be the guy I would say is the front runner, but that could change, you know, in a year. Sure. Brett, great perspective on all this. Uh, really appreciate the time. Hope we can catch up with you again down the road. Anytime. Love uh, Blue Ribbon. Love working for you all. Thanks. And that was Brett Friedlander, ACC beat writer and Blue Ribbon contributing editor, joining us here on our Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Chris, a couple other topics to uh, hit as we uh, head toward the finish line here. Sean Miller was fired at Arizona this week. Uh, I think a lot of folks thought that might be coming long before now with uh, some of the allegations uh, with that program. 
But what do you think is next at Arizona? And, and by the way, it's been a rough time for the Miller brothers. Uh, both looked to be big stars in coaching just a few years ago, and now both are looking for something new. But what what happens out in Tucson? Boy, there's so many names that, that have been mentioned. I don't necessarily think uh, – Jawan Howard has proven this wrong in Michigan, but I don't necessarily think that uh, p- players who, uh, you know, are coming back to their alma mater with – NBA experience, but no college experience. I'm not so sure that works, but I've heard Miles Simon and Luke Walton, uh, uh, Damon Stoudemire mentioned. Uh, Eric Musselman's name has been popping up everywhere, but, you know, he, he is a West Coast guy. Maybe that's a possibility. But gosh, he's got it going at Arkansas right now. He really, really does. And I think it would be hard for him to, to, to leave that. Uh, it's it's a better program than Arizona is right now. Uh, Josh Pashner at Georgia Tech, uh, he he kind of pulled himself out of the fire this year at Georgia Tech, but and got in the NCAA's. But he was on the hot seat prior to the season, so I don't know. The one name that really intrigues me is Tommy Lloyd, the, the top assistant in Gonzaga, and uh, uh, you know obviously has not been a head coach, but certainly comes from one of the most stable, solid, and successful programs in college basketball, maybe college basketball history. So right. I think there's a lot he could bring to uh, to the table if Arizona were to go that route. We'd wonder if uh, Porter Moser would, would cash in and, and take a job somewhere else after a, just an amazing run at Loyola Chicago. He makes the jump to, to Oklahoma. Did it surprise you that he did make that jump uh, from Chicago to the Sooners? I mean – Maybe a little bit, but Oklahoma's a good job. Um, Lon Kruger leaves it in, in good shape. I think Porter Mosier, and this is a great, this is a, a great lesson for young coaches. All right, he starts his head coaching career at Little Rock. He he had a, a good good career there. He moves to Illinois State, not so good. Gets fired in two thousand eleven. Works for Rick Majerus at St. Louis. And Rick, if you knew him, which I did a little bit, just a great guy and, and, and a master technician. So he improves his stock there, takes the Loyola job. Once again, patience with him, uh, with the program, uh, was patient with him. He was 7-23, and 23, 15 and 16, 10 and 22 his first three years. Then it happens. The next year, they're 24 and 13. They win the CIT. Three years later, they're 32 and 6, and they win the Final Four. So it's just, you know, if you're a good guy, if you have solid principles and you keep grinding, uh, Porter Moser deserves the Oklahoma job. And uh, kudos to to Laurel Chicago for for hanging on to him uh, despite three difficult seasons to start. Yeah. And he really got it going, and I don't think there's any doubt that he would continue to get it going. He could recruit the Chicago suburbs. And I noticed t- today he's already signed a, a point guard at Oklahoma, so he's going to have to get busy. A lot of kids enter the portal or, and or are, are out of eligibility, so uh, he'll have to g- get busy. But he's to me, he's as much like Lon Kruger as they could have gotten. Yeah. Just a really good guy. A guy now that's been at four D1 schools, Lon, I think had been at six. Uh, well-traveled, experienced, and, and just a decent, decent person. 
Chris, as we finish up our show, it is Masters Week for golf, and I know you and I are both golf fans, and I've watched this tournament for years and years. You've covered it, been to it, played at Augusta, and all those things. Uh, give us a fun memory or two of covering that event or just something that, that really stands out. Well, I've got three if I have time. Go ahead. Uh, the, the first, I got picked to play one year. Uh, it was 94, and uh, a friend of mine had told me you could wear shorts to play. And so I get up. I, I barely slept because I didn't want to sleep through my alarm. I get there, and I'm in shorts. I'm into my setup on the 10th tee. We started on 10. Uh, the tees were the same. The flags were the same. The tees were the member tees. I'm getting ready to hit, and a cart pulls up. It's one of the pros. He says, sir, we don't wear shorts here. And I'm like, yikes. And he said, you got pants in your car? I said, yes, sir. He said, take my cart. So I sped to the parking lot literally changed in the parking lot. I didn't care who saw me, <laughs> got my pants on and was back in about two minutes. I told my caddy, I said, if I hadn't had any pants, you were coming out of that, that white uh, jumpsuit. Uh, that, I was going to have to go into the pro shop and spend 200 bucks on some Bobby Jones slacks. Uh, but I proceeded to step up to the tee and I hooked that tee ball so far left. I, I doubt it's ever been seen again. Wait, was it over there by the Rory McIlroy cabins? It was somewhere in that range. Had to have been. And <laughs> but I got it together uh, by, by the legendary twelve, and uh, I hit my tee shot over the green, but I chipped to about ten feet and made the downhiller for par. Wow! So uh, that was kind of the highlight, and uh, then my my other two uh, masters memories. Uh, we were sitting under the big oak tree where you could see anybody one year. And I look up and he's in the caddy's jumpsuit. It's Glenn Fry of the Eagles. And I, I just couldn't resist going up to him um, and talking to him. And he saw my name badge. I was with the Chattanooga Times uh, at the time. And he said, Nuga, that place is awesome. <laughs> I thought you go there. Uh, on a barge, on a river in front of 100,000 people with Joe Walsh. And I looked it up, and sure enough, Joe Walsh was uh, a guest at the Riverbend Festival, which they do play on a barge. And sometimes there are as many as 100,000 people, and, and he guessed it. And we just had a great talk, and I asked him, could he ever imagine that Eagles' Greatest Hits was the number one bestseller and of all time album. And he said, no, but it, it keeps me in a lot of titles. <laughs> uh, but he was great. And I, I, I never do this, but, but I broke protocol twice. I got Glenn Fry's autograph. I've only gotten three in my career. Well, I, I, I'll take that back. I'm going to tell you why uh, now. Okay. Another time I was in the master's uh, uh, press room and I was going to the bathroom. <laughs> so I look over right to my left. There's Byron Nelson. Oh, wow. So I'm like, holy crap. So I carried this book with me, The Method of Golf's Masters, which, you know, every great player you can think of was in there. And I tried to get, when I'd run across them, to get them to sign it. I, I've got Arnie to sign it and Jack and uh, – 
So uh, I ran and got the book, and I said, Mr. – I let him wash his hands I was going to say, did you wait for him to, like, you know, finish up and wash his hands and all yeah. that stuff at least? Yeah. I let him finish up, wash his hands, and I said, Mr. Nelson, I never do this, um, but, uh, sir, would you mind signing this book? And, and, of course, he had one of the great golf swings and was one of the best players of any era. And he couldn't have been nicer – and he signed it, and we we chatted for a minute, and uh, but yeah, the the restroom uh, uh, encounter with Byron Nelson definitely stands out for sure. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I had heard your other stories about, about the, the the shorts and about Glenn Fry. I had not heard your Byron Nelson story. That that's awesome. Um, a classic, but there's so many. I mean, yeah. you run into everybody there. Right. I remember running into Karsten Solheim from Ping. Oh wow, the, the of Ping. Uh-huh. And I, I've been a ping user almost all my golf career and chatting with him for a little bit. I remember chatting with Tiger Woods' father uh, under the big oak tree. You could run into anybody sure. there. Uh, and we would, our credential, we would, it allowed us to get into the clubhouse. Uh, you, you could eat uh, upstairs uh, on the veranda. You could look inside the champion's locker room. I remember looking in there one year, the the second time Ben Crenshaw won it, and he was just really pensive and 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 keyed up. You could see he was nervous and he wanted to make history. And uh, his uh, his teacher Harvey Penick had passed away, and yep. he dedicated the tournament to him. And I just remember the look on his face and how determined he was. So yeah, every time you walked on that ground, you were a part of history. I've never been there. I've driven past the front of it and just kind of looked down Magnolia Lane, but I'd like to go there and see it sometime. Uh, the one thing that stands out from, from – and I've watched this for over 40 years. Uh, the year Jack Nicholas won in, in 86, you know, my, my dad and I, we, we'd sit down and watch the Masters every year. And, and uh, you know, as a teenager, you know, Jack Nicholas, you know, he, he was pretty far along in his career. And, you know, that was a remarkable win when, when he oh, you know, hit all those uh, memorable yeah. shots. Sorry about that. Too. Yeah, on, the, on that Sunday and, and won. And, and I remember asking my dad when it was over, I said, how did that happen? I mean, how did he win, you know, at that age, you know, against those players and all that? And my dad's like, it's all up here. It's all in your mind. And, and I, I, I've thought of, I've thought about that and playing golf and, and a lot of different things I've done over the years. Uh, I remember him saying that after Jack won. And so much truth to that. That was, that was such a cool thing to watch. And, you know, if, if you ask me my, my most heartbreaking sports memory of anything I've watched that, that I wasn't necessarily involved in, it was when Kenny Perry came up short of winning it, uh, the one year when he lost in the playoff. I, if I could have like sat there on my couch and cried after that, I think I would have because he he went to to Western Kentucky where I did and kind of gotten to know him a little bit over the years. And I was so wanting him to to kind of cap his career by by wearing the green jacket. And it just uh, it just didn't happen. He had a chance. He he almost made a hole in one on sixteen. And it looked like right there that that he was going to win. And then, uh, you know, he hit the ball in the bunker uh, on 18 and uh, ended up losing in the playoff. But uh, uh, I was I was just heartbroken. I, I wanted him to win that so bad. But uh, it's, it's so fun to watch because, to me, the cool thing about the Masters is when it gets to Sunday, and especially if they you – know, last time, well, November, but then the year before that, they played it earlier in the day than they normally did. But usually when you get to that late Sunday afternoon, the shadows, it always looks the same. Like you could watch it for 40 years, and that thing always looks the same. And to me, that that's what's cool about it uh, is that uh, that continuity that goes. You know, I covered 10 of them, 
and I wasn't the type of golf writer that would sit in and watch it on TV. I went in there and the uh, masters, unlike the U S open, the USGA would not let you walk uh, outside in, in the ropes. Yeah. You would sit on reviewing stands or you would have to trust your knowledge of the golf course and stay ahead to get. And, and Bobby Jones wanted it built where there were places where if you knew the course, you could review, uh, and, and see several holes at once. But my Jack Nicholas 86 story, uh, I didn't cover that one, but I was watching it and my wife wanted to go furniture shopping. And I said, no way Jack's in the hunt. And, and she's, she didn't know what that meant, but she <laughs> went and spent a couple thousand bucks on a, on a, a dining room set. And Jack of course wins. And years later I got to caddy for Jack when he opened a golf course in North Carolina. And afterwards, uh, Jack had a little condo on the course and we, the press was invited up there to eat and chat. And we we're just me and a couple other guys were talking to Jack. And I said, you know, you cost me $2,000 by winning that masters. And he looked at me kind of funny <laughs> and I told him the story. And then he started out on a story about an expensive television. <laughs> I never could understand it or why it mattered. Cause he had all the money in the world. Right. But, you know, really got to know Jack over the years and it, it was it was a cool experience, but your dad was dead on. It was in his mind. I'll, I'll never forget a golf writer from the Atlanta Journal had written a piece saying that Jack should retire his clubs. He was washed up. So Barbara Nicholas, Jack's wife, uh, put, magneted that story on the refrigerator in the house they were renting, uh-huh. and he had to see it. And he just kept the, the more he saw it, the matter he got and. On that last Sunday that you talked about, of course, he shot 30 on the back nine, and it was an incredible Masters. Uh, it really was. As far as the most incredible that I saw personally, uh, Ben Crenshaw winning his second uh, the, the week his, his mentor had passed, and his caddy, who's a, an employee of Augusta National, told him that he needed to move the ball back farther in his stance. His, his caddy told him that, and uh-huh. that turned out to be the key. And then the year Tiger Woods won his first, he blew away the field, and his swing wasn't even what it would later become, and that was incredible to watch too. Yeah, that was I, a... could, I could go on all day. <laughs> well, uh, Chris, maybe they'll let us do the show from Butler Cabin sometime, but uh, in the meantime, it's always a lot of fun, and uh, it's been a, a terrific basketball season and uh, looking forward to, to what's ahead and maybe a more normal off season and, uh, and a familiar season to come next year. But uh, always great to do the podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Sounds good, buddy. Thanks. He's Chris Dortch. I'm Kevin Ingram. This is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.